Well, I love this conference. Um, I love the energy. I love the passion. I love the music and the worship. Um, I love Richard Caldwell, the pastor, and I love this church. So other than that, um, <laughs> I love everything about this conference. So it's a great joy for me uh, to be here with you again. This is my seventh year out of eight, and so um, it's always encouraging to be asked to come back again, and so here, here I am. <laughs> so I'm excited to preach the Word of God tonight to you, and I know that you're eager. You would, would, you would not be at a conference like this if you did not love Christ and love the Word of God, and so you're in the right place. So I want you to take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, And tonight, our focus will be on verses 12 through 14. The title that has been assigned to me is, One Ambition, colon, The Prize. One Ambition, The Prize. So I want to begin by reading the text, setting it in front of you, then we will work our way through this wonderful, wonderful passage. And I think that you'll see why I have selected this text. Beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, writes, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But, and here it is, one thing, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In these verses, the Apostle Paul compares the Christian life to an athletic event, to a race. And as Paul makes this comparison, everyone in Philippi could immediately see it with their mind's eye. As they heard this text read, they could easily see the runners in a race, widening their stride and pumping their arms and pounding their feet, that these verses drip with the sweat of the athletes, pushing to the finish line to win the prize. And that is the one ambition of every athlete. It is to win the prize. Every athlete does all that he does to point towards the prize and nothing less. All his training, all of his bodily discipline, all of his strict diet, all of his regimented hours, all of his weightlifting, all of his denying himself certain bodily pleasures is for one purpose and one purpose only. It is to win the prize. No one would go through all of this training for anything less than to win the prize. And all of this athletic imagery stands behind these three verses that I have just read in Philippians chapter 3 that pictures the Christian life. Paul wants us to see the Christian life through the lens 
of an athletic race. And in order to advance in personal holiness and godliness and spiritual maturity, it's like an athlete in a race. There must be expenditure of of energy and, and great effort that is made to become like Christ. I mean, we cannot win the prize by cruising and coasting. We must be pressing on and pushing ahead if we are to win the prize. So concerning this race of faith, the start of the race is when you're born again. The track that we run on is the will of God. The rules by which we compete is the Word of God. Uh, The requirement is our obedience to the Word of God from the heart. The progress is our spiritual growth in grace. And the finish line is the time of our death or the return of Christ and the prize is not in this lifetime. The prize awaits us at the end of the race, and the prize is to see Jesus Christ Himself in glory. The prize is to be made like Christ. The prize is to have the full knowledge of Christ. Christ Himself is the prize. And so, as Paul lays out these verses, he draws upon this athletic imagery to help communicate to us sanctification, to help communicate to us living the Christian life. And so, I don't know where you are in the race tonight. I don't know if you've been in this race for decades. Maybe you've been in this race of faith for a relatively short period of time, but no matter where you are in your Christian life, these verses speak directly to each and every one of us, and they are intended by God really to light a fire underneath us, that we would pick up our pace, that we would widen our stride, that we would press on to the finish line, and that Christ is awaiting us on the other side in glory. So, let's walk through this passage. And there are four things that I want you to note as we look at this passage beginning in verse 12. And the first thing that I want you to see is the spiritual assessment. Paul begins by assessing where he is in his Christian life. This is written in an an autobiographical way where Paul uh, makes public his, his processing of where am I in the Christian life? And what he wants us to know is, is that he has not yet arrived at the full knowledge of Christ. So, he begins in verse 12, not that I have already obtained it. The, the it points back to verse 10. In verse 10, he has just said that I may know him and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being conformed to His death. And Paul says, I've not yet attained to the full knowledge of Christ. I've come to know Christ, but I want to know Him deeper and better. I want to have a more intimate relationship with Christ. 
And so he says, I've not yet already obtained it. I've not yet laid hold of it or have become perfect. And when he says perfect, that, that word means to bring to an end or finish. And it refers to sinless perfection. It refers to full maturity in Christ. And Paul is being honest. He has self-awareness that even the Apostle Paul, who many would consider to be the greatest Christian who has ever lived, has not yet arrived where he wants to be in his Christian life. There's still so much more of spiritual maturity for Paul to experience. And so he knows that he is not yet where he should be. He knows that he is not yet what he should be. He knows that he has not yet arrived in his Christian life, so he cannot afford to slow down. He, he, he cannot afford to, to, to ease off in his Christian life. If anything, he knows that he must press on with even greater resolve and determination to move forward in his Christian life to become more like Christ. At this point in Paul's life, he has been a Christian for something like 30 years. He he has been in this race for three decades. He has been serving the Lord. He has been in constant prayer. He he has been studying the, the, the Scripture and the apostles' teaching. And yet he realizes, he knows that he has only just begun to to put his toe into the ocean of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so, in an argument from the greater to the lesser, if the Apostle Paul, again, arguably the greatest Christian who has ever lived, after 30 years of, of walking with Christ and living the Christian life, if the Apostle Paul can say, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what it is to know Jesus Christ, then how much more must you and I pick up our pace in the will of God and run the race? There is so much more of Christ to know. There is so much more conformity to the image of Christ that must take place in my life. The more we learn of Christ the more we realize how little we know of Christ. And the more we know of Christ, the more we want to know more of Christ. So I want to ask you, how long have you been in this race? And how much of Christ do you truly know? Whatever the answer is, I want to assure you that you and I have only begun to scratch the surface. There is so much more to know of Christ, so much more spiritual maturity and growth that we need to experience. And so this is where Paul begins this part of these verses with an honest self-awareness, with an honest uh, self-assessment of where he is in the Christian life. And I want you to think tonight, where are you in your relationship with the Lord, where are you in your self-awareness as a Christian and a follower of Christ? Now, this leads second to the swift 
pursuit. As Paul continues in verse 12, the realization that he has not yet arrived does not cause him to slow down. It actually causes him to pick up his pace and to press on with even greater vigor. So he says in the middle of verse 12, but I press on. That's a very interesting word, press on. It's used 44 times in the New Testament. And in the vast majority of the times, it is used, it is translated in the context persecution. The word persecution or to be persecuted literally means to be chased or to be run after, and the idea is to be run out of town because of your faith in Jesus Christ. It means to be put out of your family because of your commitment to Jesus Christ. And that's the image uh, of this word, press on. But in this context, Paul is not being chased. Paul is actually the one who is doing the chasing. He, he is running after Jesus Christ to catch up with him and in order to lay hold of him that he might draw even nearer to Christ. And so when he says, I press on, it is an aggressive, energetic, pursuing after Christ that he might know him in a, in a more intimate way. And Paul is full of determined action in his pursuit of sanctification. He, he is pressing ahead in his Christian life. He is widening his stride in prayer. He is pumping his arms in study of the truth. He is accelerating his legs in worship. He is pushing out his chest in ministry. He is expending every ounce of energy in pressing on to be like Christ. He is laboring to the point of exhaustion. He is holding back nothing. He is leaving it all on the track as he lives his Christian life. There's nothing passive here about Paul's Christian life and his understanding of how to become more like Christ. There's not one drop of let go and let God here. There's no sitting back and waiting for some spiritual zap to, to move him along. No, he is committed to the nth, to the nth degree that he will do all within his God-given powers to pursue Christ. He is buffeting his body and making it his slave. He is resisting the devil. He is fleeing temptation. He is putting to death the deeds of the flesh. He is setting his mind on things above. He is confessing his sin. He is repenting of sin. He is disciplining himself for the purpose of godliness. He is studying the Word. He is persevering in prayer without ceasing. He is fighting the good fight. He is putting on the full armor of God. He is putting off the old man. He is putting on the new man. He is all in in his Christian growth to do what God would require of him in order to become more like Christ. This is his one ambition. Everything else is peripheral. Everything else is secondary. What is primary, what is the tip of the spear, what is driving the Apostle Paul 
is to pursue Christ-likeness and to know Jesus Christ in his heart. His ministry flows out of that. His worship flows out of that. His fellowship with other believers flows out of that. His life of evangelism and reaching others with the gospel, it is all flowing out of this one ambition to know Christ and to be like Christ. And so he says in verse 12, as we continue to look at it, he does all of this, he says, so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ. When he says that he may lay hold of, that, that, that verb is used twice here, lay hold and then laid hold of. It's a, it's a very strong verb. It, it means to literally lay your hands on something and, and to seize it with aggressive effort. And as Paul is run, living his Christian life, He's like an athlete with a runner out ahead of him, and he's doing all within his power that he might catch up with this runner out ahead of him. And in the Christian life, the one who is out ahead of him is Jesus Christ. And he is doing all within his God-given, grace-empowered ability to try to catch up with Christ But of course, in this lifetime, we can never reach spiritual perfection or full maturity, but he's doing all that he can to nevertheless catch up with Christ and reach him that he may lay hold of him while he is here in this life. So that's why he says, so that I may lay hold of that, and that that refers to full knowledge of Christ and full Christ-likeness for which I was laid hold of by Christ. Now, that's interesting. He is saying and reflecting back on his conversion, and you need to reflect back on your conversion, that when when Saul of Tarsus was on that Damascus road with letters in hand and breathing threats against the Christians to apprehend them and drag them back to Jerusalem, there to stand trial, and no doubt possibly even be stoned to death, just like Stephen had been stoned to death, that it was on that Damascus road that Christ came after Saul of Tarsus so aggressively that he knocked him off his high horse, and Christ laid hold of him. And in that moment, he was dramatically converted to faith in himself, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says, now that Christ has come after me and tracked me down and tackled me and laid hold of me and will never let me go, I now, in return, want to do the same towards Christ, that I want to come after Christ, and I want to run with all the strength that I have, that I may lay hold of Christ, even as Christ laid hold of me. And so I want to ask you, has Christ laid hold of you? Has has He come after you? Has has He come at that divinely appointed time when, whether you were in church, whether in your bedroom, whether you were at camp or at a conference or in a parking lot, but Christ came after you, and when you were converted, He seized you and laid laid, uh, His hands on you 
and you now belong to Him, Paul is saying, for the rest of my life and for the rest of your life, our one ambition is for us now to do all within our efforts to lay hold of Christ just like He laid hold of us. And so there is this reciprocal relationship. Whenever anyone is laid hold of by Christ for the rest of their life, they will seek to lay hold of Christ. And of course, the order is important. First, Christ must come after us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. We were running away from Christ, and Christ came after us and has turned us around. And now, for the rest of our life, we will be pursuing Him. That is job number one for us as Christians. That is the main thing for us is to come after Christ. And so, as you think of your Christian life, do you see yourself as one who is running with all of the strength that God can give you for you to pursue Christ, for you to follow Christ, for you to to pick up your pace, for you to widen your stride, for you to make an all-out effort to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot be passive. We cannot just sit back and let come whatever may come. Christ was so intentional to come after us. We must be intentional now to come after Christ. And so this leads us now to verse 13. And I want you to see the singular focus because in verse 13, we see how Paul has narrowed the focus of his Christian life down to this one supreme goal. So he says in verse 13, brethren, and so this is addressed to true believers. That This is not addressed to unbelievers. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He repeats what he said in the previous verse. He's being very honest with us, and it is a very humble self-awareness that he realizes I'm not there yet. I've not yet arrived in my Christian life. He says, I do not regard myself. And that verb means to, uh, to undergo a careful analysis and a careful calculation to do the math on this, to size myself up spiritually, to look in the mirror and to assess where I am in my Christian life. And Paul can only come to this conclusion He doesn't try to present himself to us as more than what he truly is or where he is in his Christian life. He says, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. It's it's just always beyond my grasp. I I can never quite get my hands fully on Christ, but uh, I'm going to keep pressing on until I catch up with him. And the it, I, have not, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. The it is, again, 
the full knowledge of Christ, to know the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, the, the bread of life, the light of the world, the, the door of the sheep, the good shepherd, the resurrection and the life, the, the true vine, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I, 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 I haven't yet laid hold of the full knowledge of Christ yet. There's still so much more of Him for me to grow, to know experientially. But in the middle of verse 13, and this ties in with the theme of our conference, but one thing I do, one thing. Paul is narrowing his focus with myopic vision. It's like he's looking through a keyhole, and all he can see is Christ on the other side. He, he, he can't look to the left. He, he can't look to the right. He's like a racehorse with, with blinders on. He, he has tunnel vision. He, he is locked in on Christ. He, Hebrews 12 and verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. <laughs> that is what Paul is, is doing here. But one thing I do. I have one supreme goal. Everything else is subordinate. I have one highest priority. Everything else is supportive. I have one master ambition. Everything else is on the sidelines. This one thing, we know what this is, that he might know Christ yet more fully and become more like Christ. And when he says, well, I do, but one thing I do, I do is not in the original text that Paul wrote. It's been supplied by the translators. In the New American Standard, it's in italics so that we know that it's not a part of the original text. And it's even more dramatic in the original language as Paul just simply says, but one thing, one thing, and that needs to be my testimony tonight. That needs to be the reality of your Christian life tonight. You need to be a person of one thing, not two or three or four or five different things. You need to be so focused and locked in with one ambition to know Christ and to become like Christ. Remember Paul said earlier in Philippians 1 verse 21, for me to live is Christ. His whole Christian life is just Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian, that you believe in Christ, that you love Christ, that you worship Christ, that you adore Christ, that you follow Christ, that you obey Christ, that you serve Christ. I mean, everything in your life is focused upon Christ, that that's what it is to be a Christian. In fact, the word Christian is Christ in the diminutive form, 
which simply means little Christ. It was originally a term of mockery and scorn for the followers of Christ. And, and those in the world looked down upon the believers and called them, well, you're just a bunch of little Christ. And the believers so loved that, they embraced that title. They wanted to be identified with Christ and to be a little Christ. <laughs> That's what we are. We're, we're, we're little followers of a grand and great Christ. We're, we're little diminutive people who have looked to Christ, and we live for Christ, and we, we love Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian, and that's what Paul is saying here. But one thing, Paul is not a double-minded man. He, he, he has a laser beam focus on Christ. He is locked in on Christ. He is riveted upon Christ. He, he's not focused upon multitasking with many different chief ambitions. There's only one chief ambition, and that is Christ. And so, for this to be carried out, Paul tells us how he does it. We need to learn this. This is what needs to be applied to my life, what needs to be applied to your life. He puts it in negative and positive. First, a negative denial, then a positive assertion. And so, here's the negative denial. It's in the beginning. It's in the middle of verse 13, forgetting what lies behind. He's still using the backdrop of this metaphor of, of an athlete running a race. And whenever a runner is running a race, he, he, he can't be looking behind him. He, he, he cannot be looking at the track that he's already covered. He can't be looking back at the other runners. If he looks backwards while he's running the race, he will, he will surely trip and fall. And Paul says, that's the way it is in my Christian life, that I cannot be looking in the rearview mirror, and I cannot be focused on the past. I, I've got to forget what, what lies behind. And I think we could ask the question, okay, uh, layer that out a little bit more for me. In what way? And I want to tell you three ways that Paul could not be looking to his past and that you and I cannot be looking to our past or will never advance in our Christian life. And the first is, Paul can, he must forget past sins. Past sins. I mean, Paul has a long list of past sins. He rightly says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 that he was the chief of sinners. And that is no hyperbole, that that is not an exaggerated statement. I, I mean, Paul acknowledges in, in 1 Timothy 1 and, and verse 15 that, that, or excuse me, beginning in, in verse 13, that he was a blasphemer, he was a persecutor, and he was a violent aggressor. That's what Paul was. He was breathing threats against the believers and arresting them, and he was approving of Stephen's martyrdom. He, he was stuffed full of self-righteousness. And Paul, when he was converted, 
came to understand that his sins had been nailed to the cross upon which Christ died, and Jesus paid in full his sin debt, and that the forgiveness of God was given to him, and the the slate was wiped clean completely, and that the past has been forgiven, the present has been forgiven, the future has been forgiven, but especially the past. And so, he cannot carry around in his in his psyche, all of the, the sins that he had previously committed, or it will significantly hinder his development in moving forward in Christ's likeness. Hebrews 10 verse 17 says, God says, I will remember their sins no more. In Romans 8 verse 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. And in Micah 7, in in verse 18, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellion? And you've cast all of their sins in the depth of the sea. I mean, Paul had to come to the place where he understood that the past is completely submerged in the depths of the ocean of God's forgetfulness, never to rise again. He he could never press forward in his Christian life if he is continually pondering and being hindered over past sins that he cannot accept that God has forgiven. And there may be sins in your past that would hinder you You're going to have to forget what lies behind, or it will be like trying to drive your car with the emergency brake on. It would be like trying to run a race with leg weights on. You will not be able to move out until you take God at His word that He does not remember your sins anymore because they have been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So not only must we forget past sins, Paul also had to forget past sufferings. And Paul has a long list of what he has suffered for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it might have been easy for Paul to have a hang-up about the way people have treated him. I mean, Paul has undergone beatings and floggings, and stonings, and scourgings, and imprisonments, and character assassinations, and slanderous attacks, and mockings, and belittlings. And Paul doesn't have a, a pity party. He, he, he's not being held back because someone's hurt his feelings. No, Paul says, I forget all of that from my past all that I have suffered for the name of Christ, in no way is that going to slow me down in running the race. I'm not going to become some psychological invalid where I can't move out anymore because I've paid a price to this point for living the Christian life. No, it's par for the course. It just follows being a Christian. If they hated Christ, they're going to hate us as well. So, we just have to accept this. And Paul cannot let the mistreatment that he has suffered in any way 
slow him down from going full tilt to pursue after Christ. And so, past sins cannot slow him down, and past sufferings cannot slow him down. And there's a third category, and it's past successes. Paul cannot cruise on past victories in the Christian life because they breed self-reliance, and they breed prayerlessness. Paul must put it all behind him, even his successes, all the churches that Paul has planted, all the souls that have been won to Christ, all the sermons that he has preached. He cannot live in the past and presume that it's all going to be replicated in the present and into the future. Paul would say, praise God for all the victories that have come through his ministry, but he cannot dwell on those past victories or it will cause him to ease off in running this race and he will slow down because he will be thinking about all the the good old days in the past. And so I want to ask you, what do you need to forget about what lies behind? If you're to run this race, you cannot be looking back to past sins. They're beneath the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they have, you've been washed, and the, the certificate of debt has been paid in full by Christ. And you cannot be looking back to past sufferings. And maybe you went through a bad church experience someplace, and, and, and maybe the, the pastor was upset with you, or maybe you didn't agree with the, uh, the elders at a previous church. And, and so this has been like leg weights around your ankles and has slowed you down and has taken the, the zip out of your Christian faith and, and your spiritual growth. You're going to have to get over it. It's going it's to slow you down. It's a new day, and God used those past sufferings to humble you. He used those past sufferings to enable you to minister to others who have gone through suffering. He's used those sufferings to wean you off of this world and cause you to live for another world that's that's yet to come. He's used those past sufferings to drive you to your knees and to make you more dependent upon God, and to remind you that you're not in control of your circumstances. God is in control. But whatever past sufferings there are in your life, it may even be being mistreated as a child. It may even be being uh, suffering in the past in a relationship. Whatever it is, forgetting what lies behind and forgetting the successes of your ministry. You've, it's, it's a new day. Stand on the shoulders of those past victories, but we've got to move on with great resolve and reliance upon the Lord. And so, that is what Paul says, but the, he then puts it in the positive. Look at the end of verse 13. Not only forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. It's not either or, it's both and. These are not mutually exclusive, they are mutually inclusive. 
we must both forget what lies behind and at the same time reach forward to what lies ahead. And when he says reaching forward, it's an interesting verb in the original language. It's a compound word that actually has not one but two prefixes at the beginning of the, of the root word, the main verb, which is to, to stretch. But the two prefixes, the idea is to stretch out upon. And the idea is to make every effort to, to press forward with all of your heart and with all of the strength that God would, would give you, reaching forward to what lies ahead, to stretch out to the max, to stretch, stretch your spiritual muscles to the limit. And what lies ahead is what is on the other side of the finish line, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be reaching out for Him to become as much like Him as you can possibly become before you are made complete in His image in that day. So every step forward in the race of faith is a step forward in greater knowledge of Christ. It is a step forward in greater likeness to Christ. It is a step forward in greater joy in Christ. Every step forward is a step closer to our goal, to the prize, to the finish line, to the glory. And so that is what Paul is challenging the believers in Philippi, not to rest on their laurels, not to be content with where they are at this point in the race, to remind them there's so much more of the race of faith that is yet in front of them. And they cannot adapt, adapt a, a passive view of the Christian life. They must be wholeheartedly aggressive in prayer and in Bible study, in personal worship, in corporate worship, in fellowship, in serving the Lord, in reaching others with the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. And so this brings us to the last verse, verse 14. I want to call this the supreme goal. This is what pulls Paul forward in the race. It's what pushes him forward in the race. It is the prize at the end of the race. So he says in verse 14, I press on. The idea is I run after Christ as fast as my spiritual legs Will, will take me, and the closer I get to the finish, the finish line, the more I'm picking up my pace because Christ is getting closer and, and closer as I come to the end of, of, of my life. And so Paul is, he's not coasting at the end of his spiritual life. The closer he comes to the end of his life, the the faster he is running. There's no retirement here from Christ. There is a redoubling of his efforts to press on to Christ. So he says, I press on toward the goal. 
The word goal here means a target or a, or a, or a mark. And like a, a runner, the closer you come to the, to the finish line, the more you narrow your focus on that, that string that hangs across the finish line and the one who stands on the other side of, of, the, of that finish line, the closer you come, the more it's in view immediately in front of you, and it's inspiring Paul, and it's motivating Paul to run yet faster, not slower at the end of his life, faster at the end of his spiritual life. I press on toward the goal for the prize. And as we've already said, the prize here is Christ Himself. Can you think of a greater prize than it be Christ Himself, that you would actually see Christ face to face, that you would behold Him in His glorified, resurrected body, King of kings, Lord of lords, His face shining than, brighter than 10,000 suns in the sky above, his hair white, his, out of his mouth a sharp two-edged sword, his feet are standing strong as burnished bronze, his eyes a flame of fire shining with all the glory that belongs to, to God Himself, that one day we would see Him not as He once was, not as the humble carpenter from Galilee, but as He is now enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high, the sovereign of the universe into whose hands has been given all authority in heaven and earth. No wonder Paul is, is, is now sprinting to the end for the prize, which is Christ Himself, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And this upward call is the divine summons at the appointed time when a person comes to the end of their Christian life, at that designated time that has been foreordained by God from before the foundation of the world, that all of our days have been written in His book when as yet there is not one of them. You and I have a limited number of days to live here upon the earth, and it has already been predestined by God the day of our departure from this world. And at that time, there will be the upward call of God that will be like a subpoena that will arrest us and take us up into the immediate presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we shall then behold Him. This prize is not earned, it's not merited, but it is what we are to be always striving for and straining for throughout our life, to know Christ more, to be more like Christ, and one day we will reach this goal and we will receive this prize, this prize which is Christ Himself. And we will be made like Him, and we will see Him just as He is, and we will cast our crowns 
at His feet. And we will join our voices with the myriads and myriads and the ten thousands and ten thousands of redeemed saints and angelic beings who are singing the praises of our Savior in heaven. That truth so captured the heart of the Apostle Paul that he strained every spiritual muscle within his being to run this race of faith to become more like Christ. And so let me ask you, as I bring this to close, are you in the race? Have you been born again? Have you repented of your sins? Have you turned to Christ and entrusted your life and your soul to Christ? This Christ who was born of a virgin. This Christ who lived a sinless and perfect life. This Christ who lived a life of perfect obedience under the law of God and fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. This Christ who was lifted up upon a cross and all the sins of all the people who would ever believe upon Him were transferred to Him and Him who knew no sin, God made to be sin for us. This Christ who bore our sins in His body upon the cross, this Christ who suffered the wrath of God that was deserving us, it fell upon Him and and crushed Him. This Christ who was taken down from the cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. This Christ who on the third day raised Himself from the dead, who said, I have authority to lay my life down. I have authority to take it back up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Have you believed upon this Christ, this Christ who ascended back to heaven and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father? that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you ever thrown yourself upon the mercy of this Christ and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? This Christ who says, him who comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. This Christ who is the friend of sinners This Christ who has come not for the righteous but for the unrighteous. This Christ who is the physician of the soul who has come not for those who are well but for those who are sick. This Christ will receive you. He he will embrace you. He will forgive you of your sins. He will pardon you. He will clothe you with His own righteousness. If you will but believe in Him and come to Him with humble, trusting, saving faith. Have you ever believed in this Christ? If so, you're in the race. So where are you if you have believed in Him? Where are you in the race? Are you a long way down the track? Have you been running for many years? Have you more recently stepped into this race? Wherever you are, whether you've been in this race for decades or whether you've been in this race for days, let us pick up our pace and run faster after Christ than we did yesterday or last week or last month or or last year. 
Have you forgotten what lies behind? Are you reaching forward to what lies ahead? Are you speeding up or are you slowing down? Your one ambition must be Christ, to live for Christ, to love Christ, to learn more about Christ, to become more like Christ. Are you riveted and focused upon Christ? This is the one ambition that you must have in your life if you are to most glorify God and be most like your Savior, Jesus Christ. Not a one of us here tonight can say, I've maxed out with Christ. Not a one of us can say, I know that all that there is to know about Christ. What else do I need to know about someone else? We all have barely even begun to know Him and to become like Him. May God give you much grace to pursue after Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, these verses in Philippians 3 are like an electrical current surging through our soul. They impart spiritual energy within us. They strike a fire within us to not be complacent with where we are in our Christian life, but to want to move out and to know more of Christ. So, Lord, tonight, may our testimony be this one thing. May we do do away with two or three or four or five things. May we not be a people of ten things. May we be one-track-minded. May we be absorbed with Christ. May we give full, concentrated gaze upon Christ. And as we do, may we be transformed into the very same image of Christ. Give us a greater grace. Give us greater strength. Give us greater resolve, for we cannot do this in our own strength. We can only run this race of faith in the strength that your Holy Spirit provides for us. Cause us to be even unsettled with our sluggishness, light a fire beneath us that we would move out for Christ. May we be like Jonathan Edwards who said in his resolutions that he wanted to be the one strongest Christian, the one most complete Christian in his entire generation. May each one of us desire to be the most complete Christian in our generation today. We pray this in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.